Welcome to season two of Gray Maybe, a limited series podcast and social experiment based on this season's topic, the body. My name is Jillian Schmitz. I'm a professional dancer, actor, teacher, author, artist, and cat lover. Through my own personal journey of recovery, I've found that things aren't just black or white, or as simple as yes or no. For me, in my recovery, there has been mostly gray area and a lot of maybes. In most of my stories, you can find the gray maybe. I will be sharing my own process through personal stories, interviews, and hopefully stories from listeners in an effort to help lessen the stigma and shame of disordered eating, eating disorders, and body image. If you'd like to share your story of ED recovery on this podcast, anonymous or otherwise, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using to catch future episodes of Gray Maybe. A note before we begin. The topic of disordered eating, eating disorders, body dysmorphia, and other behavior related to the body may not be difficult for me to share anymore, but it wasn't always this way. I recognize and anticipate the possibility of judgment or disbelief about my experiences, ranging from my own family members to strangers, in addition to the potentiality of losing certain opportunities for publicizing my own experiences. My stories and the stories of others on this podcast are told through the lens of our own experience. The revelation of our process is ours to tell. If you disagree with the views or stories on this podcast, know that we are not speaking on anything other than our own experiences and viewpoints. Take what you like and leave the rest. Nothing expressed or mentioned in this podcast is an endorsement or is meant to be taken as suggestion or advice. It is strictly the sharing of our own experiences and recovery. Any feelings this podcast activates in the listener is for the listener to process and recover from. Any criticism you have based on these experiences and choices are yours, and they are not anyone else's burden to carry. Trigger warning, eating disorders, disordered eating, anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, binging, purging, restriction, anorexia, bulimia, weight loss and gain, fat phobia, racism, quote unquote, the term ballet body. Welcome back, everybody, to the Gray Maybe podcast. Thank you so much for coming back. If you keep coming back, thank you, thank you, thank you. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm so glad you found the podcast, and I hope you check out some of the other episodes. Today is a great, great episode to tune into if this is your first time. I have a very, very lovely lady with me. I met this lady in a not-so-lovely experience for myself. I won't speak for everyone, but I met her on a job that we did in China for the lovely Keith and Sharon Young. They are lovely choreographers. The job was uh, a very cool job, but being in China was not so great for me for a lot of reasons. So I met this lovely, amazing lady on that job, and I've kind of kept tabs on her ever since. If you have been noticing what's going on in the Broadway world right now, she was just the associate choreographer on Sweeney Todd. The musical and also is working with the Harry Potter that is on Broadway right now. And I mean, she's had like an exceptional career, but um, and she will tell me more about that and correct anything that I might not have said. 
But I would love to introduce Chelsea Arcy to the Gray Maybe podcast. Chelsea. Oh, Jillian, thanks for having me. No, all of that is correct. I am, yeah, just opened Sweeney Todd two weeks ago with Josh Groban and Annalie Ashford starring. Um, And it's kind of a huge success, which is amazing, but also really wild to be in New York and have that all happening. And then I jumped right back into uh, Harry Potter as um, the movement captain and swing over at Harry Potter and the First Child on Broadway. So So you are busy. Yes, wands and blades, like bouncing yes. back and forth. Yeah. Yes, and you're you're especially busy because today is a Monday, and for those of you who don't know, in the theatrical world, this is what's considered a dark day, which is a day that most shows are not running. So this is the, like your guaranteed kind of day off to like do everything you need to do and get everything together, and sometimes go see other shows that might still be running on a Monday, all that kind of stuff. But it's typically your one day off. Yeah, I am actually going to see uh, New York, New York tonight. So they have a Monday show. So that's what I'm going to go see after I. Amazing. Yeah. And every, there's a few shows I do, but it's just not quite as common, at yes. least from when I've. That's yes. really correct. Um, now, Chelsea and I met on a job in China. It was a very hard job for me for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, injury stuff, um, just not able, like culture shock, a lot of culture shock. I've been a lot of places, but that was definitely a culture shock. And the food there was hard for me. Uh, for a lot of reasons. I don't know if you had the same experience. Um, but I do recall one of the first things I learned about you, or at least one of the things that really stuck in my head, but then I completely shelved. Like it was very, um, it's interesting how I categorize this based on where I was at the time of hearing that information. So one of the things I learned about you early on was you talked about having an eating disorder and you talked about it like it was, oh, yes, I live in New York I have a, uh, and I have an eating disorder and I'm going to go here for lunch. Like it was there was no it was just so matter of fact. And I remember holding that in my brain and being like, huh, how how OK, I, I had didn't have a lot of experience with people being up front or out about something like that. And then to say it so casually and not have, you know, it kind of swirled around in my head a while. And then I compartmentalized it because I had, you know, was in my own weird ass stuff with food, but because I didn't think I qualified, I didn't, I, there was no intersection of your, what you were saying and my experience. And it almost like, I almost compartmentalized it so that I, I don't know, so that I wouldn't have to be alike in that way. I don't know. It was very weird what I did in my mind about that. Yeah, I think um, I've also experienced that exact, like, intersection and decided to, like, make a U-turn back around (laughs) with other people in my life that um, maybe had experienced an eating disorder in whatever capacity that they had. Um, but I remember feeling like that's not what I have. And, and, and it may not have been what I had or what you had or what mm-hmm. anybody who like has that intersection has. But like, there's definitely, I have a relationship with food that is just not comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I realized um, previous to meeting you and, and probably other people that like, I remembered that intersection with somebody who I was like, oh, no, that's not me. But it mm-hmm. felt like, ah, uh, but it made me feel kind of way. But right, I didn't know what I it was. It. And I remembered it. It bookmarked in my brain. And it wasn't even until, like, in doing this season of the podcast 
that I was like, okay, who do I know? Like, who would be maybe willing to come on? Who would be willing to talk about this? I know so many dancers. I know so many people in the industry that have to be suffering, but I know so few people who are out. And it took me so long to even think of you because I had put it so far back yeah. in my brain. And when, like, I remembered Kat Tokarts because right when I was starting to get help, she was being out about her situation. Mm-hmm. So I was like, her. But like when I really thought about it, I heard yours and threw it in the back closet because I probably was nowhere near ready to deal with any of it. Sure. Um, so can I ask you, like, when did it when do you think it began for you? Like, was there anything you can recall yes. some of the like early <laughs> stuff? Like, because some people go to like when they started their behavior and some people are like, oh, when I was three, I remember this or you know, some things like that leads up to and then there's like a uh, behavior or some people are just like when my body started changing at puberty, that was the taking off point. Yeah, this is this is a really it's very specific. I actually remember the first day that I was like, I'm going to engage in something that not everybody does every day. But um, prior to that, um, because I had been a gymnast, I was mm-hmm. like five two until I was probably about 15 or 16. Um and had decided to dance because I wasn't going to do competitive gymnastics anymore. So joined ballet, started taking ballet classes. Of course, I have, like, this tiny little athletic body. And, like, in gymnastics, it was, like, ah, muscles, everything. Like, there was no body fat. Um, Start ballet, and I start to grow. And I, like, my junior year of high school, I was 5'7 all of a sudden, and I weighed 98 pounds. Like, the size I was, the number, when I was 5'2", I was now 5'7". And everybody in the entire world was like, you have the best ballerina body. Like, it was like the physique. And it was just like, eat it all up. Like, it was like the most amazing. And, like, so then it became this obsession, right? Like, how do I keep this 5'7 body? And I became obsessed with the the number 98, right? Like, that was all I could remember because it was like, it can't possibly mean that my weight will change if I am tall now and I can stay thin. Um, and I remember that being like the turning point because everybody was just so complimentary. It was like, you can go to SAB, you can go to ABT, you can, you have the perfect ballet body. And there's this really fucked up book um, in ballet culture. And I remember taking, I, it was in college, it also is part of the pedagogy program. Anyways, it's probably not, it doesn't exist anymore, but it's a book in which it defines every, like, ballet um, step. It's like a ballet Mm -hmm. encyclopedia, and it has a picture of a dancer's body inside and, like, kind of gives you an idea of, because I remember asking my dance teacher, like, how much should I weigh? And she couldn't answer that question. That's, like, an absurd question. Also, like, what do you say to a 15-year-old who you're, like, clearly this is a disaster of a question? Um, yeah. But she showed me this book and the book. And I remember looking at it. It had like, you know, like arched feet should look like this. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, fingers should be long and like arms should be open and like neck is long and like, you know, all these things. And then it had height and it had a height like five two to like five nine. And then underneath the height, it said like eighty five to 110 or some ridiculous number so then in my brain I realized it was like in five pound increments like whatever the numbers were I did the math because 
because that's how my brain works. And I was like, mm-hmm. if you are 5'2", you must weigh 85 pounds. If you are nine, if you are 5'3", you weigh 90 pounds. And that's, and so I became obsessed thinking that if I was 5'7", I had to weigh, you know, like 105 pounds or whatever it became equivalent to. And so it just became a disaster. But that was the beginning of a very, very long road. It was not, it never, I would eat anything that I could see prior to ballet. Okay, and so that kind of like that idea of I need to weigh a certain low weight directly translated into like a food situation. You were already, yeah, like before it, that you were like, just eat whatever. And now it was like, okay, wait, if I have to weigh this. Yeah, it became, it was the only way I saw it working. Uh, there was like, at that time, you know, dancers weren't cross training. It was like mm-hmm. not an athletic thing. It was like you wanted to be dainty and feather-like and... Um, which is like the complete opposite of today, right? Uh, but right. So it was how much can you not eat in order to do ballet class? Right. And I remember drinking tons of orange juice. Like on a Saturday morning, I would take like a, a big jug of orange juice and because it had enough vitamins and it had enough sugar, but not like Coke sugar. You know, it was like... Mm-hmm enough natural sugar to like get me through all my ballet class or at least make me feel like I was doing something. So that the number became the thing of why I became obsessed with food in that. I did the orange juice thing as well. I did that, uh, in my second year of training out here. Um, I had a show like uh, my end of the year kind of show, like kind of like a scholarship end of the year show. Right. And, um, and my schedule was so jam-packed in between my classes. I had rehearsals for all the numbers I was in, and I was in all the numbers. And so every second was rehearsal or class. And I used that schedule as an excuse to not eat, but I had that, like, orange juice in the fridge. And it was, like, not even good orange juice. It was, like, orange juice. You get it, like, the 7-Eleven, Chelsea. It was, like, t- it was, like worse than tang yeah it was amazing. like i don't even it's like i don't even know what it was it had orange juice on the outside but it's in like the jug and it was like not yeah sugar yeah it was sugar water it was sugar water so i was just like jugging like chugging that in between like thinking you know like oh yeah i'm doing it i'm doing it and then i would go home and like eat whatever i wanted which never ended up being even that much because my stomach wasn't even that big anymore to be able to eat yeah. anything, but it would just like, I could, it, it, to me, I was kind of like, oh, this is great. I can eat whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that still be super skinny. That's the thing, right? That also happens. It's like when I wasn't in front of people, it would be a thing of like, well, then I can just, I'll do it now because I, I did the thing that I needed to do. I got through being in front mm-hmm. of a mirror and I feel good now. So now I can do that. And it just became this cycle, right? Because like, the next day, I didn't want to do it, but you would do it again, and it was the easiest way to um, kind of wrap your brain around that emotionally. And then it, it, it just, that, that's the very beginning of a long story. <laughs> a, long, a long story. And um, I like in what you just said, I get the hint of like, well, I don't know if this is for you as well, like the rewarding of food, like I would reward myself with food if I did certain things or got through, like I would push off food, put up, push off food, push off food. And then if I got everything done mm-hmm. and I just would keep creating tasks for myself and then I would be like allowed to have the food at the end of the day or allowed to have it if I did A, B and C. 
And then, of course, I would punish myself with not having food for the rest of the time. Yeah, I think um, for me, it, especially in New York, that became like I remember in college, the schedule for me was it was quite tricky because you don't you don't want to do ballet on a, a full stomach, so that always was mm-hmm. an easy excuse. Um, and then you know you have an hour for lunch, and then you're going to go into modern and do like drop swings, and it's like I just can't right. possibly. So now it's three o'clock. And you have an hour mm-hmm. between your live arts classes or whatever, and so you're going to have coffee and like a donut, mm-hmm. you know, like. It was like sugar and caffeine was the thing mm-hmm. to ride off of. Um, but, you know, well, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school. And so this um, idea of eating disorder lived so easily in high school. It was the easiest thing to hide. It was the easiest thing to be encouraged by. Um, mm-hmm. It was it was never a hard thing until I got to college. And then it was like, oh, you you do that and you're, you know, like, oh, there like, you could see like a little bit of like outside. Yeah, totally. Because condemnation you know, or something. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, high school was very, very easy. And, um, you know, there was a point where I, I, I hit a really low point in high school. Um, and I actually, I remember we went on a family vacation and we went on a cruise right like and I had already done my summer program like it's fine and I I just ate so much and I gained probably 15 pounds like I'm it was the heaviest I've ever been in my entire life um and I remember coming back after that vacation because it was just like pure like your body just reacted and my dance teacher was like you need to go see the nutritionist and I was like Mm. what because like body dysmorphia I felt good because I was eating, but like my body didn't know what to do. So then I started working with a trainer in early on, like a nutritionist in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because like, you know, I think there was like a bit of control with parents and like, it was like, okay, we have to, there's something going on. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually got back to a really healthy weight. Like it was like, she's in dancer shape again. And I could see that like, you could do it through eating, but I also was training on top of doing dance class but I think that all to say is like there is always like this it was this until I got to New York and even past New York mm-hmm. you know and um I think it's probably why I felt so comfortable in being like yes I have an eating disorder and I'm gonna go eat over there <laughs> well and I think like I think it's interesting you mentioned the word control because the minute you said that you went to an all-girls Catholic high school, I was like, oh, well, there there you have it. Like when children and adolescents, some of the, the few things they can control is when they go to the bathroom, usually like when they actually, you know, go to the bathroom and or where they go to the bathroom and also what you eat or what you deny to eat at a certain point that are, those are kind of like the two things that kids and adolescents can control. So if you're going to an all girls Catholic high school, I was raised Catholic and I can't imagine the a need to control in that, in that kind of an atmosphere would be just ripe for that, right. you know? Yeah, totally. So you said, you know, it was just kind of up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, with the, like the different behaviors and stuff. So even though you got a dietitian, like, and you were able to like kind of even out the yo-yo of that, 
did did you take any of that with you or did you just get sneakier or did you ditch it because you're like i know better oh i totally got sneakier um and that's <laughs> totally it was like i'm fine you know like once i got back down to my weight i think i got it got weird because like nobody who's 16 diets on like you know counting um your proteins and stuff like it was like so ahead of the time which i'm like oh, fuck, i wish i i don't can i swear on this thing Yes. Amazing. Yes. Um, you know, so now looking back, I'm like, man, I wish I remembered what that was because it was such a well-balanced, you know, I remember certain days I could eat pasta and I was like, I get to eat pasta? Like, this is so weird. But it, like, also mm -hmm. everything was so plain. It's very much on what anybody who's trying to have a clean, healthy lifestyle is doing now. But, um, mm -hmm. it felt so restrictive at the time. Um, so yeah, I, I started, that led me to going, I can have food. The control part still then, I started um, binging and purging. And so that's where it became, uh, because I felt abnormal. The people noticing you not eating uh, draws mm -hmm. attention. And then you're like, uh, uh, I eat and I can eat mm -hmm. whatever I want and still stay mm -hmm. in. Um, so I switched gears. Like I could no longer handle, uh, the anorexia and the control within minimizing my food intake in the social pressures got to me of how to do that. Like, especially when I got into my later years in high school and then definitely in college, it was, um, the only way I was able to, um, really keep tabs on my weight. And obviously like if I looked back at pictures of myself, it was not doing any, anything that I thought it was. And in my mind, mm -hmm. it felt like I was staying in weight, but like you would just look at me and go, oh, something's so wrong. And not because I was thin and mm -hmm. it, your body just, you know, expands in a way that goes, help me. And, um, mm -hmm. it, that was, uh, that was the way where I got really sneaky. <laughs> I, uh, I love that, that you're, talking about the diversity of the dysfunction and I'm finding that that's pretty typical. Everybody that I talk to has so much diversity in their behavior. So a lot of times I ask people like, what would you identify as? A lot of times if you go into like a program like OA, they have you identify when you say your name, much like an alcoholic would say, I'm Jillian and I'm an alcoholic. When you go to an OA program, you'd say, I'm Jillian and I'm a, an orthorexic, you know, um, restricting over exerciser, uh, you know, binger. You just like list your behaviors and it changes yeah, and people would change their behaviors based on what they were going through. So if they were, you know, came into the program and they were a binge eater and as they went through the program, like they got some recovery, but then maybe they had a setback and they're like, um, you know, now I'm going to add restricting because I found some solace. I, you know, like I found some solace in it, which isn't good for me, but like I'm recognizing that I do that. And I'm finding that for someone like me who really wants to put everything in a black and white category, hence the name of the podcast, Gray Maybe, like there's so much gray area and it's kept me from getting recovery and help. It's kept me from being healthier by thinking that I don't qualify because I am not one thing or I didn't do all of the one thing or I didn't do the worst of what I, in my head, what I think, you know, whatever that is. And so um, I think it's like really much more common than I think anybody is discussing is how much gray there is and all the different behaviors that normally someone, if they start with one behavior, will usually go to a second, third, fourth, fifth, 
kind of behavior and like may or may not even be really conscious of it at first. Sometimes it just kind of sneaks in and sometimes you're just really conscious of it and you're like, yeah, that's what I'm doing now. Um, but it's got to get difficult in college when I, a lot of young people, that's how they bond is they go grab coffee, they go get dinner. They're in like the mess hall that has like the food and you're ordering food late at night with friends and you know, it's your first time on your own. So you're doing adult meal things with friends. Yeah, I think that was probably um, the hardest part for me. And I, I, my best friends who are, you know, they are still my best girlfriends to this day for my roommates. And they knew the entire time. And they, I, we have had long conversations about it now, um, years past. But, you know, they didn't want to get me kicked out of school because they knew this is what I love to do. They knew what mm-hmm. it was, I was supposed to do but they didn't know what to do with the information because like it is, it's a weapon, right? Um, Because in the wrong hands, like anything can get misdiagnosed or it could be taken Mm -hmm. too seriously or not too seriously or whatever. Um, So they kept my secret and I I love them for that because I probably wouldn't be where I am today. Um, I know it was really stressful for them because they just saw me hurting myself Right. They just day. felt like they're enabling, enabling yeah. you, you know, totally. but at the same time, that could have been super detrimental to your trajectory. 1000%. Like easily, I, I think about it. And, you know, I think there was probably many other people um, in my school dealing with it. Actually, I think more theater people, more than the dancers. Um, if I look back on, on who was doing what you can kind of it's funny I don't know if you can tell but like I can walk into a room and be like mm, you have an eating disorder you have an eating disorder. yes it's like yes ding, 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 ding. yes and yes it's really yes. like a sixth sense um and some people will be like I don't why would you say that and like you have you just like mannerisms I can tell by the way that they're yep looking at something I can tell by the way that they're looking at other people it's often yep. times like how I look at um you know people when I'm auditioning because it's like mm-hmm. You know, I, you can tell that somebody's not there, not present. And that's Mm -hmm. such a a thing Mm -hmm. that comes along with it because those thoughts uh, take over. And I don't know, Mm -hmm. for you, it became compulsive. And that whole Mm -hmm. thing turned into, you know, a whole different thing that had nothing to do with eating because it was like Mm -hmm. the balancing of the scale of, um, I remember when I eventually graduated and not eventually, I graduated on time, but like. Uh, when I moved to New York, um, my my first boyfriend in New York found out and outed me, and I was so mad at him. And uh-huh. he told my mom, and my mom was she's known. She just like never came. To right, I was gonna say, it. did she, I see? Yeah, she she knew. She, he wasn't telling her anything she didn't know, but it was probably something she still didn't, wanna she didn't want to address. Yeah. So then it was like, well, now we have to get help, and I was like. This is the biggest eye roll of the century. Um, so, you know, like I went, I started seeing like a behavioral therapist because uh, I actually never went to rehab like per se for it. Um, and so I started out seeing a behavioral therapist for compulsion. And mm-hmm. because mine had kind of morphed into like obsessive compulsive disorder mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. combined with bulimia. So it was like, oh, not only are you going to bulimic binge but you're going to count while you're doing it so this is like becoming a thing that is infinite it it could just keep going because 
this, like a ritual, yes. a ritual thing. Yeah, the yeah, rituals that they was, that people talk it about. It became really like it was no longer about the weight. It was about feeling in control and feeling safe, or creating, um, you know, whatever those rituals make you feel uh, safe. And you know, when you talk about it, it, makes you feel crazy, but it is very real thing. And you know, now looking back, and this is all before I met you. And so, like, so it. it so coming to terms with it, knowing exactly what that is and all that it encompasses, it's really easy to say. And I think I wish more people would be honest with themselves about it because it's not an easy life. And if you knew somebody else was dealing with it, you'd be like, oh my God, let me just help you. Or let me go out to lunch mm-hmm. with you so you don't have to be by yourself. Or whatever mm-hmm. those those things that like would be helpful. Um, but it's funny, when I do now as like a a woman in her mid-30s, you look around and you go, oh man, how hard is that? And even seeing women our age, um, mm-hmm. you walk into a room and you're like, that must be tough every day. Right, right. Yeah, the I, I definitely can, I can sense who's got the issues. And it's always easy to see the ones that are showing symptoms externally, you know, because there, there's a certain look to... Totally that that is not you know there i don't want to get too too into you know breaking apart what people look like but you know there is a certain look that you're just like okay that's it and then but there's also the ones that don't look quote unquote like they have one but you can pick them out because just like you're saying you can see how much they're looking in the mirror you can see how much they're adjusting your clothes you can see how much they're not present and you can also there's a certain type of um personality type that you kind of touched on that is like usually like super type a super responsible super um you know possibly even like really hardcore people pleasers um people who are striving for control people who feel a lack of control high anxiety you know depression you know and a lot of that stuff like you know i would assume stems from traumatic stuff or also is just like however your biology is made up of and Obsessive compulsive disorder is like literally it is BFFs with eating disorders. I would liken to say that I don't know a lot of people who don't suffer from OCD that don't that, that people who have eating disorders that don't also have an OCD type trait. And I think that OCD gets like a very weird rap. I think people think it's like, oh, that picture's crooked. I can't I have my OCD can't take. It's like, no, 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 no. This is different. This is the inability to tolerate the lack of control Mm -hmm. and you're doing everything in your in your in your power and even imagined power to try to control because you feel so out of control and the anxiety is crippling there's also like i think the the, a lot of times when people talk about bdd but um body dysmorphic disorder they think it's just like oh you see something that's not there and usually they think oh it's just you see yourself as larger than you are yes it's true but there's also people who see themselves smaller than what they are and they don't like that there's also people who pick their nails till they bleed like i do if you want to know how anxious i am take a look at my hands you'll be able to tell exactly how anxious I am week to week based on how many cuticles I have ripped off and I'm like bleeding from. And also the picking of the skin. Mm -hmm. That is also something that happens with BDD. People yell at me all the time. Don't pick your skin. Like stop picking your skin. Like I have friends that say this to me and I'm like, it's a compulsion. And I don't think you understand when I say that, what a compulsion means is that I can't stop. Yeah. That's actually my, I have a smile because 
we there's a character in Sweeney Todd that we um, it's such a small detail, but that I'm you know, typecast for. You're typecast should I for. Audition? You should audition. Okay, perfect. For Joanna. Perfect. Um, she <laughs> has. It's a small detail. You're, you know, like in a house of fifteen hundred, but every night she paints red on her cuticles because mm-hmm. that is her her thing and it's her obsession and it is her compulsion and it's just like such a like a little full circle because it's it's a mm-hmm. real thing and it's these things have always existed they exist in mm-hmm. theater they exist in real life and um i think storytelling when you can bring real things into um storytelling it makes it feel a bit more relatable like if you saw her on the stage when you come to new york you'll be like yes mm-hmm. that is me I understand that. I understand. Like, there's my character. Yeah. <laughs> there's my typecast. I found me. The ingenue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think they're almost like, I don't know if so- at some points with this disorder, dis-ease, however you want to cl- classify it, like um, where that ends and where this begins, like where OCD ends and where the eating disorder begins, or where the eating disorder ends and OCD begins. Like, I think it's kind of all can be one big ball of that. Um, so if you have an eating disorder, look into OCD. And if you have OCD, look into what the eating disorder stuff is like, we're legit, like the wealth of it, not just like the stereotypical things that people think or say, but like the real in-depthness of BDD or OCD and what some of those things and that behavior looks like. Um, so if you had to identify like, uh, like even throughout, and I don't know if today you would even identify necessarily, but like, what would your identification be of your behavior? You mentioned restricting and you mentioned bulimia. Would that be kind of yeah, like, I mean, I think like as of, as of now, I will always say, I think the only fair way to say is like, I, I suffer from an eating disorder. I, it's not active in my life. It feels like, but to the people who do have, um, addictions other than uh, eating disorders, they will always be, you know, an alcoholic mm-hmm. or a drug addict. And I, I think mm-hmm. when comparing the two qualities, you know, side by side, it, it's just, in, I'm not active right now. And um, right. it's very much in control. It doesn't take, is it something I think about every day? 1000%. Mm-hmm. It's never, mm-hmm. I don't think it's ever not going to be part of my life but it doesn't control my life in a way that it did. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the real thing is, I think when you know that you can have a conversation about it without being embarrassed um, and feel judged about it, um, because I think that's always a really true space of going, I'm good with whatever it is, mm-hmm. but it's not part of my life anymore. Um, so I would say, yeah, it's, it's there. She is always looming. She's always, dormant. She, she's, she's dormant. Just, she's sleeping. She's hibernating. She's hibernating right now. And that's great. Yeah. Live your best life. Sleep yeah. it away. But like, Sleep it off, girl. Yeah. But it's, it's, I think, you know, the thing that is, I think about all the times that I was, how it happened so early. It makes, I, I really imagine it being quite difficult going through as an adult and not knowing the things mm-hmm. that I do know. Um, mm-hmm because dealing with these feelings that do come up and like the hint and you're like, okay, girl, um, dealing with that in your 
mid-30s as somebody who may or may not be in a relationship, whatever, I can't imagine what a, a train that must be on. And, and, and that could be really detrimental to you functioning in the world. And especially, I can't, you know, New York is such a social city, you know, same with LA, mm-hmm. anything. Um, you're always going out to eat. You're always grabbing coffee. You're always having a meeting. You're always doing this, especially in the industry. And uh, to not be able to do that and enjoy those moments because they're so fleeting. And mm-hmm. I think there were so many things that I wasted. I can't imagine wasting any more time on it mm-hmm. uh, and letting it kind of be the, um, the captain of the ship, per se, uh, that existed for so long. Yeah, I think when my early 20s, when I was like, some of my worst, like, times with the eating disorder where I was like, really completely just encompassed with it. Like, I thought shit was bad then. But it's like, as you get older, like shit doesn't get easier. You just either learn skills to deal with it or you don't. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't get easier as your parents and your family ages. It doesn't get easier as relationships change or people around you pass away. It doesn't get easier when, you know, certain dreams may not be coming true. It doesn't get easier. Like, nothing gets easier as you get older. You just hopefully start to find ways to cope that aren't so abusive to the self. If you have that kind of particular um, uh ailment of turning things on yourself like which so many people do if you don't good good for you (laughs) Um, (laughs) I love that for you but I just don't know a lot of people that that's not the deal right so um absolutely 100% I you were it was you were so blessed I don't even know if I I never use that word even but you were so fortunate to like in younger to be able to kind of like identify and work through it and be able to kind of find whatever you needed to, to kind of in the later part, not that you're in your later life, but to be able to continue to have success later and put that, you know, have old girl, you know, hibernating and not what I like to say, driving the bus while you sit in the back being like, Holy shit, where are we going? Um, Yeah. (laughs) But I don't know about you, but like stress, the minute stress comes up, Mm -hmm. she's, she, um, I think that's the first thing, right, that yes. you lean back into. Um, and you just have to be like, no, that's not right. It's yes. exactly it. It's being an adult and you have more resources. And I think, like you said, you don't have the excuse as a child to make some of the decisions that were quite reckless. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I also, this is a weird thing, but as we're talking about it, health has changed so much in the last 10 mm-hmm. years and like, Oh, that like people care about you being actually healthy? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And like, I just like, you know, you're like, you're so lucky you went through it when you were younger. I feel like kind of lucky. And I say that with like the weirdest grain of salt because it was like nobody wanted to talk about it. So it was just like Mm -hmm. under the radar. Like if I was going through that now, I feel like everybody would know my shit. And I don't know if I would be okay with that because I wouldn't be in Mm -hmm. the same spot. Um, Right. But it was like. We will not talk about this. Oh, she is fine. Like she may be ninety-eight pounds. She's she's a beautiful ballerina. Like you know what I mean? It was like, mm-hmm. um, and so it kind of just like slipped under this weird radar. But like if if any of those little things slipped in now, people would be like, "What's going on? Are you seeing a therapist?" Right. Do you need to talk? 
Yeah, like they would just be like ding 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 ding. Like all these people around you willing to help, a and b right. to provide resources. I I mean like mm-hmm. it's just funny. And I don't know if I would want to be there now. I think that would be really right. hard because it feels echoed in a way that I would not want the support. I didn't want that. The might have been too much attention on yeah, you exactly. at the time, like that kind of attention might have been too overwhelming for you to be able to have that process. Yeah. I think also like, you know, that just things have changed with social media and like people want to see a journey. I wanted nobody seeing my journey. Mm-hmm. Don't want you on my journey. Do not come. <laughs> don't buy a ticket. I don't, you know, and so it's like <laughs> zero attention. Don't look at this journey. And now what's right. weird about this full circle is like, this is a journey, like talking about it, like it's a twenty. 20- 20-year journey that, like, when I look back, I'm like, oh, God, that's really old. But, like, at the same time, it's been 20 years. That's, like, a whole human being and, you know, Mm -hmm. who has lived a life that had this thing just swirling around inside of it. And it still does. And, like, when you talk about, you know, looking back as that is now a journey, was there a moment that you recall was kind of, like, a rock bottom or like a moment where you did stop being sneaky and you decided to either really put forth any of the things you learned in therapy or like really, was there something that freaked you out Yeah, or anything like that that kind of set you straight? Yeah, it was um, my, my ex-boyfriend from college. And I remember he was like, I can't do this with you. And I was like, hmm. what do you mean? Uh, he was like, you have to do this by yourself. And we broke up. We moved out from one another and like it was like going to my own personal rehab because I lived by myself I had to be responsible I was going to therapy and it was like I realized that you know and I had to tell my mom I had to confront my roommates from college like it was my my stuff was on blast to the people who right already knew it but then I had to confront it in a very honest way that never would I want to confront that and admit to it. I just wanted you to know and not talk about it. Um, so that, I would say that was a really big turning point because also it's like the very beginning of me living in New York City. It's like within the first year. And New York is cutthroat in a different way than LA is. Um, mm-hmm. There's just different venues to go down. And lots of, in a way, you kind of have to, not to say you have to pick what you want to do, but there's so many options for dance, right? Like you could go mm-hmm. classical because there's plenty of mm-hmm. classical companies. Go commercial. At that time, we were still doing music videos over here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, theater, Broadway is totally different. Um, so I think it was a wake-up call of like, if you don't get this together, something is, somebody's going to find out that you don't want to find out. And that may be, this industry is too small. That's, I mean, ultimately mm-hmm. what it always comes down to and you kind of go, okay, now I feel comfortable because I've done the work. I, anybody who listens to this knows who I am and has seen my work. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They're not going to judge me based on that. But at the time when you're 20, you're a liability. Oh, know? for sure. And I think I, there's a reason why I haven't been able to really get any young people on the podcast is probably because they, I, I'm sure they're afraid to tarnish their reputation or that it might 
keep them from being hired. I mean, the fact of the matter is if you're in recovery or working towards recovery, I don't think you should ever have to be afraid of that. If you're actively in your addiction, yeah, I think that's something to very much be afraid of. I think it's like anything. I think it's like if you have a drug addiction and you're not actively in rehab or you've gone through rehab or you're going to meetings or you're trying to get it under control, no one is going to want to hire you knowing that audit, like if, if the job's in Vegas and you're going to go and you're going to have a problem, like no one wants to be like, oh, shit, you know, is so-and-so going to be up, you know, till 5 a.m. before, you know. But if you're in recovery, they're going to be like, yeah, you know, I want to give them a shot. They're, they've fallen on hard times. They're trying to better themselves. So I think like you're absolutely right. That inclination to know that someone's going to find out but it's not going to be in me in recovery. It's going to, someone's going to find out that I'm out of control or that I don't like that. I have this issue and it is a liability for hiring me because I'm a wild card. And if I'm not focused on what I'm doing in my job, then no one like, that's the whole point, right? Is that you're there to do a job. And if you can't focus to do it, that's not going to be a good hire. Um, okay. That's good. Okay. So he, you know, instead of taking that moment as an abandonment and being like super freaked out and like, oh my God, now what am I going to do? And it get getting worse. It was like the catapult for you to actually get better on your own. Yeah. 1000%. Yeah. It was, it was, and I don't mean like getting better on your own in your little, like you, you obviously were in therapy. No, like I yeah, want to be clear was, people, you can't do this on your own. You do need some kind of support totally. system. Um, yeah, and I was seeing a nutritionist. It was like, we're going to do this. And, and, like, it was, there was, like, a team that it just wasn't in, a, like, an outpatient program or in, a, you know, a specific rehab program. So, but it was certainly something that worked with my schedule and my, I would say, my willingness at the time and what I could um, digest. And it worked well. So... This is a question that I'm trying to figure out how to ask it. Oh, just ask it. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to figure out a, a way to ask it. Okay. So in my experience and my perception of eating disorders and the awareness around it and the recovery around it, it to me has, I, it has seemed very white and very female centered. Mm -hmm. Now I have seen, like I can count on one hand how many people of color I've seen in the rooms when I've gone into OA meetings and I just don't know a ton of people who are black or brown or of other minorities and white. And it is very white and female. There's not even a lot of ton of men. And I've been lucky to have quite a few men on the podcast to talk about it. Again, they're all white men. And so like this, like, I guess my question is like, has that been your experience? Did you notice that? Like, how do you feel about being, you know, a woman of color that, is in a white recovery realm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I I noticed that too. Um, I think it's, uh, this could be like a five-hour long podcast because... Right, and, and also you're not the monolith. Like, I know you're not responsible for yeah. women of color experience. No, but it is, it is, I often wonder, like, why is that? And it, because it's it's a disease. It's not... But then you go like, well, where does it come from? And, and, and how does this brew? And is it how people are raised and where they're raised? And, um, you know, is the, the chemical imbalance in your brain, right? And, like, there's those things that, that you kind of go like, wait, what? How, how is it just always this specific group of people? Or it seems that way. Because they don't mm -hmm. think it actually is. But I will say, 
you're absolutely right. I could not think of a person of, you know, color that has had the same experience as me. I have friends who have dieted, but not in a way where it's like, we are on two different levels. You know what I mean? Like that's, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I don't know. And, um, you know, I think for me, it's, I, I, it's mind boggling. It really is. And I wish I had a better answer because it's, it blows my mind. Um, I mean, I don't think that there are a lack of black and brown people that are suffering from the same exact things. Let me be clear. I don't think that this has anything to do. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a statistician. Like I don't, maybe there's stats that this is an opposition, but my feeling is it doesn't matter if you grew up poor or rich. It doesn't matter what kind of a household you grew up in. It doesn't matter if there was more control or less control. I think it's very much in how certain people deal with certain things, certain stress and certain, you know, desire to control their situations and circumstance. So I don't think that there are a bunch of like, that this is a a white centered problem, but it does seem to be a white centered recovery. Yeah, Like that's who you're hearing is getting recovery. That's who's speaking. That's who's, you know, out about it. That's who's going to meetings. And I don't like that. No, (laughs) like it can't be good. No. And I would be so curious to know what the numbers are in and, right. and and actually look at that and because it it does feel like a very white recovery thing and you go well what what is that to do and and why is that um, mm-hmm. it's a fascinating because question it is and, and I'm sure there's numbers and I'm gonna do a little research post at B to try to see and find out I think there is like this idea that like oh you know if you're a certain race that you just don't like, that's that it's somehow cultural that like, you know, it would be where, you know, like it would be disrespectful in certain households, Mm. but it was disrespectful in my household not to eat your food. And I still found a way to get really controlling about it and fight it because that was one of the main ways that I was able to find control in my, in my household, it being a bit chaotic with, you know, uh, alcoholism and whatnot. You know, like that was my way of finding control. So even though I was able to like do what I needed to do to appease the adults around me, I still found a way to do it. So I'm just hoping like, I'm hoping that changes, number one, and I am going to look up and see what I can find on it. Uh, so I'm, I'm guessing I'm hoping because I'm, I'm, I don't know entirely. I know some of the demographics of who's listening. Like I know age ranges and I know women to men and I know like where, but I don't have, I I can't tell what races are listening or what ethnicities are listening. Um, And I hope that all, like everybody is, I hope it's not just white centric because I think there's so much recovery available to people. And I hope that those people can find it. Um, So, okay. You know, like in your experience, you, you had the same experience as me. It's just a bunch of white ladies, right? Totally. <laughs> just white ladies. Yeah. And, and like, you you know, it's interesting because, and it was a lot of like, I guess like for me, it was a lot of dancers and, and okay. like ballet can tend to be very white. That white, um, yep. So it's just like stacking one thing on and top theater. of yeah, it's theater's just, gotten a little better, but it's also still like very, very historically yeah. very white. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, and you're right, things are changing and, and for the better in all 
departments of, uh, I think, the arts uh, and expanding uh, viewpoints. But it, that was my experience in the mid-2000s, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you feel like there was any part of that that you couldn't relate to or that you thought was different based on well, being know, like... It's funny, like my mom was always dieting. My mom is white, my dad is black. So that just seemed like a normal thing. You know what I mean? Like right. in, in that period of time, like I could tell you every, I mean, diet pill that existed, every, um, you know, Weight Watchers. Like, so watching somebody diet seemed normal. Also, right. you know, very white. And that was a right. trendy time, you know, whether it's like... right. I love that moment in uh, The Devil Wears Prada where um, uh, Miranda Priestly explains why the sweater is blue. It's right. very similar in, like, why, you know, there's a Glamour magazine with, you know, Cindy Crawford on it, and she says, I only eat grapefruits. And then it's like, my mom's at the dentist's office in Connecticut and reading Glamour magazine, and now she's mm-hmm. only eating grapefruits. So then I'm going, well, can I have some grapefruits? What is, why are you eating only grapefruits? You know, it's like... This trickle-down effect that exists can be so detrimental and but start in a, a very isolated place that has nothing to do with dieting. Right, and the sweater thing she's talking about at the end, she ends up saying, like, you didn't choose the sweater. The sweater was chosen for you because exactly. the people who are in charge have chosen it. You think you're exercising free will in actuality. You are a part of the system that was created for you. Yes. I love that. That's very much how it feels, like, on a lot of fronts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And the grapefruit thing. Oh, my God. I hate grapefruit. I absolutely cannot stand grapefruit. And I remember in the late 90s and early 2000s eating grapefruits, eating grapefruits. I hate them. They taste like stomach acid to me. I can't even eat them unless I put a pound of sugar on them. And I'd be sitting there eating a grapefruit like this is great. This is great. I love it. This is great. Oh, my God. I can't. Oh, okay. All right. Do you uh, (laughs) moving moving far and away and far on to far away from grapefruits? Um, do you remember anything about some of your early recovery? Like, is there anything that sticks out early in recovery that, like, you remember struggling with or that you just kind of remember, like, oh, yeah, that thing? Because I, I like to talk about that if anybody can remember it because I think so often there's, like, okay, I had a problem and then I went into recovery and now my life. But there's some really dodgy moments in and around recovery, especially early recovery, that is so hard. And I think we want to skip past them because we don't want to remember them because it's terrible. But I think it might be helpful for people to know about them if you remember yeah, anything. I think for me, the biggest one was people commenting on how I looked and saying, oh, you look so good. And that was really confusing to me because, mm-hmm. you know, depending on when you said that to me in my life, it meant a different thing. Like at one point... You know, when I weighed 98 pounds, people said, you looked so good because it was the perfect ballet body. And then I couldn't maintain that. Um, mm-hmm. And then when I gained weight and then, or like, you know, after recovery or, you know, in my 20s when I feel like my body like settled um, and people would be like, you look so good. And, but it was like, I weighed 20 pounds more than the last time I heard this. And so that was a really scary moment because it felt like a key to unlock another door of like, well, do I need to lose 20 pounds? Like who's telling me the truth? Right. Almost like people are placating you that yes. like when it, like the, 
they're saying the same thing, like you look so good, but you know because you might be gaining weight or becoming a more healthy weight that they're saying you look so good and you're like, you're fucking with me. You're just yeah. saying that because you know I'm sick and like you want me to gain weight yes. and I don't want that. So right. what you're saying every time is you look good is that I'm gaining weight. Yes. And, you know, I think that people commenting on like, you know, even to this day, my family will say stuff like, you know, if we go out to dinner and we'll be like, oh, you're eating. And it's like, uh. mm-hmm. and like, not like, it's just people not thinking about what they're saying. And like, yeah, I'm, I'm restricted because I'm in my mid thirties and I'm a professional dancer. Like I cannot mm-hmm. be eating cheesecake every right. day. Like these are right. things that happen when like you grow up, like you just don't right. do that anymore. Um, so I think like well, and also some of these things you you your body starts saying like no thank you like you start getting acid reflux when you yeah. eat certain things as you totally. get older your body starts dictating what you're kind of allowed to have and not yeah and also like I think when you finally learn what your body uh, and I think it's a beautiful thing that I always like laugh with um, you know women of my age when I'm like oh, wasn't it just so nice when your body finally just didn't fluctuate like it just mm-hmm. stayed at a number like. Within three pounds, five pounds, you get your period, right? Like, but like mm-hmm. it stayed there consistently. So you go like, this is where I'm supposed to be, and like right, there's not are. a fight. I can mm-hmm. still have pizza one night and still go take ballet class the next day, or you know, actually have a drink, you know, or not mm-hmm. have a, you know, like so. But and all of these things were so restricted at a period of time, and my body just was saying, just give me a little bit here and there, and I would be so happy, and. Mm-hmm. I think that when you finally get to a position of going, ah, this is just where my body lives. It functions at its highest quality. But all that to be said is like, you know, dodging the bullets of people, not being conscientious of trigger words around you. And um, Okay, and is that... Because some people like myself too, like I have certain guidelines or abstinence or sobriety that kind of keep keep you from relapsing into like I'm not allowed to be on diets and every day I want to be on a diet like every day like I'm constantly fighting the urge to put myself on whatever weird ass diet I've seen on Twitter TikTok you know like Instagram like whatever I've read like whatever I think like I, I can just think them up in my head too they can be magical you know I can come to my own you know six sick senses about what I think I should do so that's something for me that I'm not really allowed to be on diets. I'm not allowed to calorie count. I'm not allowed to have off-limit foods because everything for me will eventually become an off-limit food. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything like that? You mentioned like trigger words. Yeah, I don't have anything specifically when it comes to food. I am very mindful of like um, what when I feel like I'm functioning at my best is when I meal prep and like that's a control thing for me. So mm-hmm. if I can um, prepare things, then I don't get stuck in a grocery store trying to make a decision between shows. Because that's when I'll be like, yeah, I should just have cookies. And then I'll feel like shit. Like there's, and then that mm-hmm. can lead to a spiral. So I, although I don't have specific like bullied points like you just mentioned, uh, they are definitely, um, there's some rock hard things in my head that I'm like, if you put... That, if you do that, you know what it's going to do and knock on. Right. So you know the op, knock, knock on effect when it comes to all that stuff. So, you know, there are days where I'm like, that was a dumb idea, Charles. And you're going to pay for it tomorrow when you don't feel good. Or like when you are feeling kind of shitty about your body. Or, 
but it mm-hmm. never leads to a place of um, relapse um, mm-hmm. in, in that sort of way. It just kind of goes, well, that was a dumb day. And right, right. A dumb thing. You know right. better. You've- Right, right, right. And I think like, I think once you get to a certain point, like there is very much like kind of a a gentle approach of like, okay, that wasn't the best decision. You know, you know yourself, you kind of know better. You know, I often will not plan foods. And then I do, I go into the same thing. And instead of making a choice of sugar, because I get very weird about sugar and fast food and stuff like that, like I get... I start to get into a place where I can't have anything because everything's terrible. And like, Mm -hmm. I need to, like, I have, so that's why I need to plan my things or know what I have as my safe, what I call safe foods, which is like, I know at Starbucks, there's certain things they're going to have that I always have. And I'm fine with it. There's certain things at target that I know I can go and grab, you know, that I can be okay with. And I'm not going to sit like you said, and like spin in a grocery store and try to figure out what I'm going to do, which causes like this whole panic situation. So I definitely relate to that. Um, Thank you for bringing that. That's like exactly what I wanted to know because I, I very much relate to that. Yeah. I also, I don't know about you, but like if I know I'm going out to dinner, I like to plan. Like, so I don't like people to spring on like, let's go have dinner. That stresses me out um, mm-hmm. because I'm very kind of picky about like when I eat, especially around shows and when you're right. performing. Um, but I often like to like take a look at the menu so I can have an idea. So I will always. I'm this such is a the theme. This is the theme. Kevin and I, yes, we have a theme. This has been mentioned. Yes. So I can just know. I can be prepared. I can act surprised when I get there. But, like, I know already what I've, you know, so even if it's, like, something like I want to plan to indulge more that day to not feel stressed, I'll look the night before. So, like, maybe, you know, I'll have a healthier breakfast or a lighter breakfast in order to, like, Mm -hmm. be like, uh, I'll treat myself in case somebody wants to get dessert or, like, whatever Mm -hmm. that is. So it's just, like, Knowing, I think, all the corners of the room is the best way to create the most success for me mentally um, Mm -hmm. without making or projecting my feelings on anybody else. Because I think Mm -hmm. looking back in the past, that's what stressed people out around me. Like, I would totally, my behavior of, like, not being able to make a decision or, you know, feeling incredibly anxious about food would just ruin a lot of things for people I think that I didn't even realize that now looking back it would drive me nuts if I was oh, yes. myself you know what I mean yes yes <laughs> yes because I was the same way and I can't imagine how many times that was like just a nightmare to try to yeah. figure out what to eat because everything to me I couldn't deal with um in our kind of community and whatnot why do you think that more people don't discuss this as an issue like we are i for those of you who may not be dancers that listen to the podcast in the last several years the dance community has really started speaking up about various inequalities power imbalances um uh essay sexual abuse you know and things like that but i feel like this just kind of gets glossed over and isn't really talked about yeah i think you know it's fascinating and i think part of uh why I love theater is because like they want to see humans on stage. Like Mm. you can't tell a story with people who don't look like normal people. And like, Mm. not to say that dancers don't look like normal people, but at a certain point, I feel like the aesthetic, we didn't look like normal people. We looked like dancers. And I loved that. 
I loved looking like a dancer. And if I walked down the street in New York City, someone's like, are you a dancer? I'm like, yes, I am. And I worked very mm-hmm. hard to look like this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. like a proud moment. Um, but the more and more I work on the creative side of stuff, um, you realize that it doesn't do a, a service to have people who the audience can't relate to. Now, I think, like, there are certain theater pieces that you do want to go see and say, like, you know, I've also worked for Cirque du Soleil, where it's like, you're working with athletes, and they're not, you know, whether there's eating disorders existing there, I'm sure there are, but you're working with athletes who are at their Mm -hmm. top of their game, and they are, talk about focus with diets, with Mm -hmm. exercise, it's like, laser point. But Mm -hmm. I think it's not talked about because there's actually not a support system put in place. And I Mm -hmm. think um, if you're going to talk about it, then you have to talk about a lot of things that were fucked up in the past. Because, you know, now the thing, things are switching and there's a lot of body positivity and, um, you know, diversity in body types. I know, especially in musical theater, that is something that is trying to exist, but I think the thing that is so complicated about an eating disorder is that you don't have to look a certain way to have it. And, Mm. you know, you can be a thin dancer and be in shape and not have an eating disorder. And I could Mm -hmm. be struggling with my weight, trying to look like you standing next to you and have a serious eating disorder, but I Mm -hmm. look healthier than you who is actually Mm -hmm. healthier than me. So Mm -hmm. I think it's this very complex, uh, mindset that different than like alcoholism or you know drug addiction it's almost unseen and it's it's a mental illness I mean that's what it is Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so then you're asking to talk about mental illness which is Mm -hmm. there's not the infrastructure built in our industry to support that I don't think Um, no and that and it also yeah sorry go ahead no I think that's like the bigger thing, which is why it's like such a wide net. Um, it's if it could be isolated, like, do you struggle just with food? You could get a select group of people to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like the mental illness behind it and the layers in which just like, just in, within our conversation, we have two very different versions of an eating disorder mm-hmm. combination of a cocktail. And mm-hmm. I don't think two people are alike. And mm-hmm. I think, it would just blow people's mind that if you laid out 15 random people, they would probably all have some sort of an eating disorder. And then how do you diagnose that? And how do you ensure that? And how do you provide help in which it doesn't feel like you're just being shipped off to a rehab or something very general? Right. I think there's also this connotation with artists and art that, mental illness is like kind of welcomed because being crazy somehow can be like the, you know, the, the birthplace of creative ideals and artistic, whatever. And I think, I think that's been across our, our industry or our community is like anytime there's been a power imbalance, I think a lot of times it's been written off as someone who's just a crazy genius or someone who's, you know, they're just, their work is just so important. They just don't have time to speak nicely to someone or not yell or not throw the, and it's just like so toxic and outdated. And if you think about it, it's just such um, an easy out, right? For bad behavior. But I think there's also like 
not that everyone is with a mental, mental illness is having bad behavior, but I think there gets a lot that gets kind of almost like that it's a rite of passage. Like to be an artist, you have to be tormented. Mm-hmm. And whereas I don't know if that's true or not, uh, cause I'm tormented. Um, <laughs> but, but I think like, uh, I had a guest on, uh, a week or so ago that talked about like your sickness is your gift, but in its recovery, you know, like it is your greatest gift. It is like your golden goose of creation, but you have to be well enough to create it, you know, like you have to be well enough to create that afterwards. So yeah, it's just something I've been thinking about a bit. I know that like for, and it's different in like, you know, industry, right? Like in theater, HR has now been implemented. So like, Ooh, it's corporate y'all better watch out. Yeah. So this is a good thing. And, and, you know, a scary thing, right? Cause it's like a territory that has never existed. But with that being said, it also provides a space to go. I need a mental health day. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. I'm not unstoppable. And you have a third party to say, mm-hmm. I'm struggling. Um, so I think there is becoming more support, um, I can only speak for the Broadway community and theater, commercial mm-hmm. theater, let's say, um, through our union of equity. But it's, I think, as like, if I was going to say, like, if I was just being a commercial dancer and a dancer, I would feel very lost. And mm-hmm. um, I think there could be uh, a space to have that, but it's a very vulnerable thing because there's a lot of judgment on it. I mean, like, right. It's, it's such a wide net again, that like, well, what does it mean? And like, what kind of eating disorder do you have? You know? And I think it's just like you open yourself up. Anybody who wants to help is opening themselves up to a door that you don't know what's behind it. Like it's not a mm-hmm. specific uh, thing that fits in the box. It's a very complicated thing mm-hmm. that is not as dangerous as other addictions, but it certainly has its dangers and um, mm-hmm. is life threatening at points. And also, you know, can be under the watch. It can be like a functioning alcoholic where you would mm-hmm. never know anybody is struggling inside and uh, they are just functioning daily. And yeah, so I think it's, it's just, it's so wide and I don't know how they can be specific about it. I hope that people can figure something out. Yeah. I mean, because the push comes to shove is it's a way of coping. So like you're saying, we don't know why, you know, nobody knows why someone is using that as a coping. Like, what are they using it for? Because it is certainly being used by someone in a moment of uh, disarray, of needing something to cope with some other things that aren't wanting to be dealt with. So it's like that can be super dangerous when you take away someone's only coping mechanism. Like that feels like well, now I don't have anything. So now I don't know what to do. You know, it can be really, really um, scary for people. I think that um, maybe aren't ready to deal with it or don't have any other skills. Or like you're saying, if you're trying to help someone like you, most people who don't have a a degree in some kind of therapy and counseling, like don't know how to help someone make that transition or go get help for that thing. Well, and I think also like, you know, not everybody's therapy is the same. And like, even, you know, the best therapist in the world may not be the right thing for you or whatever. Yep. And so I think it's a very complicated relationship um, in order to define. But I think the more, you know, I, when you, when you messaged me, I was like, huh, 
like it was like actually like so lovely because um you go there are people who are just in the world who are very successful dealing with these things and it's not messing with their life they're functioning they're mm-hmm. doing their thing and it was like the loveliest thing to see that pop up in my inbox but like in a way of like yeah let's talk about it like because it's just part of my life like I go to work and it's right. not um I think the more you can normalize it like we are with a lot of other things so I think it's just like down on the queue that it will eventually mm-hmm. right it's up it's coming up in the queue it's coming up next it's so, it's in processing okay exactly yeah, yeah. so I think like there's that but I think the more people can feel just comfortable letting it be in a casual conversation the less it becomes a problem I think that's always where the problem lies is when it's not in conversation um mm-hmm. so you know maybe somebody will go viral on TikTok talking about it I don't know yeah these things definitely, the eating disorders especially thrive in secrecy. I mean, all addictions do, but definitely eating disorders. That's why it was so fucking powerful when you were like, yeah, I struggle from eating disorder. And then you just went about your day. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, holy shit. What did she just say? Like, she just said that. Like, And, and this is the thing. Like, for those of you who might be afraid to get to the other side, there is so much freedom. And there is so much, like, I, I like the only thing I can describe it as is feeling um feeling untouchable or like bulletproof when you out your own truths no one can out you no one can out you. they can't say anything that you didn't already say when you tell your own secrets it's like instant you feel instantly untouchable from any kind of blackmail not that anyone's blackmailing you but that can certainly be a feeling when you're living a life of secrecy so that's been that for me like is there anything that you've gained in recovery that you know you would say that you could speak on yeah, I think that it's just like the power of um, being honest. I think I, I lied to a lot of people and I didn't see it as a lie. I didn't even consider it lying. I considered it like protecting myself. So like so selfish and um, really one, one-minded about that. But I, I learned how to be honest. And I also really actually like learned that my honesty would because of this was so skewed and mm. and I think you kind of like hit it right on the head is that like I can only be the person I am today and you know like what I've dealt with all of these things and I'm still doing the thing that I love to do and mm-hmm. you know I think that just being upfront about it just like you're like well, I have uh, three Tonys and um, I am a nominee for an Oscar. It's like, well, you didn't lose the Oscar. You were nominated, right. but you didn't win, right? right? You know, it's, it's like, it's all how you kind of put it. Like, it's not like I didn't screw up my life by having an eating disorder. It was in my, it's part of me. And, and but here I am, you want to hire me. And so it's like, I think it's like you said, it's the power within the word of the honesty and the truth in it, because like, lying sucks and like those lies just became so deep and like crazy it takes a lot of energy to remember what you've told who you've told what to like what you're key like how to contribute to a conversation without saying too much or you know like all those things yeah and and like it was i was so tight i was so tight about everything like it was just like i was wound so tightly and i don't know i used to have like really big crying 
themselves because I would just like the entire day I was just like this and could not relax until I got mm. home. And then finally, because I wasn't putting on anything, like you said, I didn't have to think about who I was lying to or what I would expose by saying this. And would somebody see me eating this? Like all of these things, where it's like, tick, 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 tick. it was um, to just be like, yeah, I had a cookie today and I feel fat, but that's fine. Anyways, uh, mm-hmm. I'm allowed to have a cookie. You know, like, and like, right. that's where it is today. And like, yeah, not to say I feel fat, but you know, I can have certain feelings and be honest about it and be like, I just don't feel great today. That's mm-hmm. it. And I think it, it is empowering. And I love hearing you say that because, you know, when I started dating again, I remember it was one of the first things I told my partner. And I was like, I just need you to know that this exists in my life. It's not a problem. You will never mm-hmm. have to deal with it. Like, it's my own thing. But, like, it is... It exists, it comes out, and uh, if it comes out, I deal with it. You don't have to deal with it, but, like, I would be lying to you from the very beginning mm-hmm. if I did not have this conversation right. with you. Right. So, yeah, I think honesty is, is I felt, like, 15 years younger, I think, when I finally told everybody. Yeah. And I think, you know, yeah. it's hard because people don't want to believe it. I think there's some people who are like, I didn't hear what you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is terrifying, too. And then I'm like, right, right. (laughs) Right, because that is a way to, I don't have to put that in a box or think about that or see how I relate to that. I'm just going to put that somewhere else and pretend I never heard it and move about. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I have one last question for you. Okay. So I always say that I'm not in the business of giving advice. And I'm trying not to give unsolicited advice to people in my life. Um, But I want to know if maybe you have any suggestion for anybody who might be suffering right now. Okay. Um, That is so tough. I know. You can think about it. You can think about it for a little bit. Because, you know, I like thinking about when it was the worst and I didn't want to hear anybody. Right. What could have gotten you. Yeah. Right. Right. And I guess if you could find somebody that does suffer, that is outed, I think that is your best way um, to get to the other side uh, because it will make you feel completely normal and everything that you ever thought. And they'll support you even having an eating disorder, if it's not your time to go to the other side and figure things out, they can absolutely understand all of the the things that come along with it. And I think that is, it was, it was seeing other people and like just feeling normal around them was enough. And then at a certain point, I remember me going, I don't want to be like them. I remember my glasses shifted and it was like, that now looks dangerous to me and, mm-hmm. and it was all I needed I just needed the perspective but I needed to get close to it that it felt like I was still observing somebody else even though it was me to then mm-hmm. be able to be spun around and go I would like to back away from this now not in a clean way but it was just like I knew that that was like a good turning point so I think find somebody who has um an eating disorder and who is um in I, I don't I I don't give advice right we don't give advice but like I would say somebody who 
is really in a, a space of recovery in which they can just openly talk about it because it will never leave them, but they certainly can understand every single thing that you are going through and um, can just say, yes, I've experienced that and ease your mind one less moment and not feel like you've experienced something that nobody has experienced before. I mean, we just talked about it for an hour and it's like the amount of like cross dissolves that happened with things that, and I didn't even know you were going through all this, you know, Mm -hmm. at the time that we were working together, which is fascinating. Yeah. Worst place to have eating disorders in China. Yeah. Oh, my (laughs) God. Because we, uh, just to, like, get you, like, we're on our way off the podcast, but just to tell you, like, where we were in China was not, like, the bougie, you know, know, the bougie area of, of China where you had influence of Western culture. We were literally two hours outside of Beijing, at least maybe with traffic three hours and we didn't have access to kind of whatever food we wanted. There was like a weird seven 11, uh, a walk from our hotel. And so our morning, noon and night food was based on what the hotel made. And they made classic Chinese home style, family style food. And it was always kind of the same. And it was always very heavy cooked, greasy, seasoned, all the things you know, and when we would ask them to make things a certain way, they would say, okay, and then they wouldn't do it. And it just was like, you know, it very much for me got to the point where I just didn't, I, I didn't like the food so much that I just would kind of stop eating or eat very little, which was very normal for me. Like that's an easy thing for me to do. And I was very much in how I dealt with things, which was not great. And, um, so it wasn't great for me, you know, like I, I feel like after that trip, my nails were like chipping. My hair was like weird, you know, and I, I don't know, like I can't imagine how other people that might have even had some recovery under their belt, if that was hard or challenging for you at that time. I'm, you know, like, I don't know. I just know that I was cooking noodles in a water boiler in my room, like in a, in a water, you know, the water heaters that you make tea with. I was like prison cooking in my, in my room. <laughs> Because I didn't want the stupid food that they were like, I couldn't eat one more fried piece of pork or whatever. The I don't even like pork, so yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I was just eating sugar twenty four seven. It was crazy, and we didn't have a because we were. That's no, and we were my dancing brain. hard. Yeah, we were dancing hard. So you were like really hungry, and I would just want like I wanted like, like nutrient-rich foods like salads and like things like that fruits and like that was just not what we had available to us so that was like really throwing me for a loop plus I had like all these ideas about certain foods and how I dealt with them which may or may not have been true yeah it was very challenging it was very challenging it was a good challenge um, you could now eat anywhere Yes. Yeah, totally and I but you know that the thing about that job that was not challenging was the people on that job was not challenging not even for a second there was not one person on that job that i didn't enjoy being around there's not one person on that job that i didn't love standing by sitting by talking to that was not challenging at all at all at all it was oh a great my god people. that was over 10 years ago it must be i know yeah t- 2013 2013. Okay. Anyways, I've taken enough of your time, Chelsea, RC. Thank you so, 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 so much for coming on the podcast, lending your time on your dark day of all days. Um, I can't thank you enough. And I'm so glad I got to catch up with you. Thank you for coming on Great Maybe. Thanks for having me. 
I have always had the highest respect for Chelsea. She's so talented and so much fun as a person. Part of that respect goes way back to when she first disclosed her eating disorder. I'm so humbled that Chelsea agreed to come onto the podcast and share her journey. I never thought back when I met her, and she courageously and nonchalantly shared her truth, that 10 years later we would come full circle to this conversation, and I'd share my own nonchalant truth. Chelsea's story, although different from mine, still has so many similarities. However, what I can't relate to, and never will, is the experience of entering spaces where people don't look like me. As a white woman, I can be fairly confident that not only will I see people who look like me, but I can read literature written and published by those same people. And those same people will most likely be my therapists, dietitians, and nutritionalists. The meetings I attend, my race and sex will be well represented. And social media and online culture will echo that experience. This is my privilege, even in the realm of recovery. Much like the second wave feminism movement of the 60s and 70s, it lacked intersectionality. Recovery, therapy, and wellness has a long way to go for inclusivity, equality, and equity. From the National Eating Disorders Association website regarding people of color and eating disorders, eating disorders affect people from all demographics of all ethnicities at similar rates. People of color, especially African Americans, are significantly less likely to receive help for their eating disorders. Black teenagers are 50% more likely than white teenagers to exhibit bulimic behavior, such as binging and purging. In a study of adolescents, researchers found that Hispanics were significantly more likely to suffer from bulimia nervosa than their non-Hispanic peers. The researchers also reported a trend towards a higher prevalence of binge eating disorder in all minority groups. People of color with self-acknowledged eating and weight concerns were significantly less than white participants to have been asked by a doctor about eating disorder symptoms, despite similar rates of eating disorder symptoms across ethnic groups. Women of color in the United States face substantially more stress resulting from their membership in multiple subordinate groups than that caused by acculturation alone. Eating disorders in women of color may be, in part, a response to environmental stress, an example, abuse, racism, poverty. Therefore, given the multiple traumas that women of color are exposed to, they may be more vulnerable to eating disorders. I hope you found something that resonated in my conversation with Chelsea today. If you're listening to this episode and you're realizing that you're more like Chelsea and I than not, welcome. And I hope this helps you take a step in the direction of recovery if you haven't already. You're not alone. Just a reminder for anyone who needs to hear it, you don't need to wait until you're sick enough to get help. In fact, you don't have to be sick at all, just a desire to feel a little better. If you're listening and right now you're struggling with an ED, disordered eating, or other behaviors, welcome. Know that, whatever you're feeling, there are those among us that have probably felt it too. You're not alone. If you're listening because you have someone you love in your life that is suffering or is in recovery for an ED, welcome. You are also not alone. Even having an eating disorder myself, I have not reacted the best I could to others who were struggling before my own recovery. I've attached the do's and don'ts of how to deal with someone suffering in the show notes, as well as how to contact Chelsea and myself, and various links for help and recovery when and if you're ready. If you've made it this far, 
Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you were able to find something relatable in today's episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this is also a social experiment to see if in telling my story, I can embolden listeners to share their stories. If you'd like me to read your recovery story on this topic, anonymous or otherwise, on the podcast, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com, G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who helped make this Gray Maybe podcast happen. Producer and editor, Roderick Barge. Cover photo by Jose Perez. Music licensed by Pixabay. Special counsel, Jada Ellingham and Roderick Barge. Special shout out to supporter, Patty Olgan. If you'd like to support this podcast, please rate, share, comment, and subscribe. Until next time, bye for now.